Welcome to the program. We know that for individuals, youthful pain, psychological trauma, and shame can have profound effects. It can be a driver of depression or an engine of great achievement. Just as the high school nerd or scapegoat may spend his whole life trying to gain respect, achieve success, or get the girl, the same can be true for nations and cultures. For China, humiliated by the British in the mid-19th century and then by the Japanese, its modern history has been an effort to find a way to gain respect, to fill the psychological void left by its previous shame and humiliation. In the case of China, it's been particularly difficult because of its size. To be weak is shameful. To be big and weak hurts even more. This idea provides the framework for Orville Schell and John Delory's look at China's modern effort to achieve wealth and power. Orville Schell is the author of more than a dozen books. He studied Chinese history at Harvard and Berkeley, has written for numerous publications. He's formerly the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and he is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. John DeLore received his Ph.D. in Modern Chinese History at Yale. He's taught at Brown, Columbia, and Peking University. He was Associate Director of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. It is my pleasure to welcome John DeLore and Orville Schell to the program today to talk about their new book, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century. Orville Schell, John DeLore, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you both here. In many ways, the modern history of China, certainly since the mid-19th century, has been this, this constant drive, Orville, to restore its place to wealth and power, to regain the kind of prominence that it once had as a great empire. Talk about that. Yes, and I think it's very difficult for Americans to kind of fully comprehend uh, what it's like for China to have been sort of trying to claw its way back over the last century and a half, uh, you know, from a state where it was once preeminent and then where it was pretty helpless and hapless and preyed upon by every great power in the world. I mean, I think for Americans to imagine that if America... Uh, and we, too, have sort of taken for granted our preeminence and our strength and our power. But if we were to have become sort of the sick man of uh, the Western Hemisphere, how we would feel. And I think that, as you suggested in your introduction, did in a very strange and interesting way provide a tremendous engine of energy uh, for Chinese who never forgot where it was that they had been and where it was they wanted to return in terms of sort of respect in the world. And now at last, they're sort of chinning themselves back up to a position where they do have greater equality. John, of course, the other side of, of the coin, the other piece of this, is the degree, and partly because of its size, and the other part primarily because of its culture, it has been so difficult for the Chinese to be able to mobilize to, as a culture to accomplish this, to change their culture in ways that would accomplish this. Yeah, that's right. And, and culture is a big part of the story that we tell in the book. You know, if you go back to the 19th century, uh, it's hard to describe the cultural confidence that, that China had. I'd say it far surpasses Americans at our uh, peak of feeling, you know, that we have the best values in the world and this kind of thing. I mean, China 200 years ago was, was absolutely sure um, that they were, as the word China, Zhongguo, literally means the, the central kingdom, the middle kingdom, the center of the world. 
Uh, that all crumbled, and initially there was a great deal of resistance to seeing culture as part of the problem. That changed dramatically by the beginning of the 20th century, and then for much of the, for reformers and revolutionaries from around 1900 all the way until the late 1970s when Deng took over, for that long period of time, culture was the the problem that they identified. So they were asking, why are we behind? Why are we backward? Why are we big and weak? And from uh, one intellectual who we profiled in the book, Yang Qichao, all the way through Mao Zedong, who probably all of uh, your, your listeners have heard of, culture was the focal point. And of course, Mao went down in flames with the uh, great proletarian cultural revolution. It was all this attempt to, in a sense, destroy the core of Chinese culture, uh, almost like an atomic explosion that by splitting that atom, um, you could unleash this energy that they all wanted to unleash in order to achieve wealth and power. And in that respect, Orville, it is arguable, at least, that that what Mao did, as horrible as it may seem in so many respects, sort of wiped the slate clean, that, that he eliminated so much of the underlying culture in a way that made the rejuvenation post-Mao even possible. Yes, in a certain sense, uh, even Mao, uh, I think both John and I would subscribe to the theory that he was one of the more violent and sort of savagely brutal leaders, and the movement he led was extraordinarily sort of, um, you know, disruptive. But, you know, like the French Revolution, which sort of got rid of the aristocracy and the divine right of kings in France and really changed fundamentally uh, sort of the not only society but what society believed in. Uh, Mao was a similar kind of a um, figure in, in, in China and all these people struggling, struggling, struggling to catch up with the West and then identifying their own Confucian culture as the problem but never being able to quite break its back. And Lord have mercy, Mao did that. And so when he died, uh, and then Deng Xiaoping came along, a real pragmatist, he didn't have to wage these struggles. So the revolution, in a certain sense for China, I think you could say was was in, in a very meaningful way a cultural one. And Mao erased that board and passed on to, uh, to Deng Xiaoping a kind of a, uh, as we describe it, uh, writing in the book, a kind of a shovel-ready project where the demolition had been done and they were ready to construct new edifices and a new kind of economic system. What was it, Orville, in that Confucian culture that held the country back for so long? What was it in the cultural framework that prevented China, even before Mao, from breaking out and beginning this effort at reemergence? Well, you know, there was tremendous emphasis in Confucian culture, as there is, in fact, now, because there are many echoes of Confucian culture lingering, but uh, emphasis on stability, maintaining hierarchies, order, obedience, sort of a correct, orthodox view of things. And this meant that it didn't have the kind of yeasty uh, kind of dialectical dynamism of the West, which is always contending and overthrowing the old and, and stating the new, to wit, all the revolutions in, in Europe and America. And so there was a feeling as the West arrived and then Japan just marched into China and had their way with it, occupied it, preyed upon it, exploited it, that 
the reason why China wasn't strong enough to defend itself and its honor was that it was steeped in this kind of very static culture of Confucianism, which wasn't totally static, to be sure. And so there was this sort of like tissue rejection mechanism that went into effect against it. And um, now, of course, it's passed. And interestingly, uh, the leadership starts wanting to bring it back again. Why? Because they now want to reinstate a quotient of stability in this kind of pell-mell, wild west economic reform that they've been undergoing the last few decades. One of the driving forces, John, behind all this was was bringing the country together with a, a strong sense of nationalism. Talk about that. That's been an important part of this story. That is, and you know, we have to step back and put it in perspective because really, um, almost any book like this that that told the story of a modern nation state would be about nationalism. Um, and you know, similarly, what we would call Chinese nationalism, the Chinese would call patriotism, right? And and vice versa. We don't talk much about American nationalism. We make it sound better by calling it patriotism. That said, what we saw in the in the individuals who we focus on who are many of them reformist thinkers, some of the most progressive intellectuals of their day, some of them quite liberal. Uh, we would describe them as liberals who are advocating elements of democratic reform over the last 130 years in China. Nonetheless, we saw in each of them this very powerful nationalist language and spirit and drive. And so, for example, on the issue of democratic reform, when these reformers would, would argue in favor of greater elections or representative assemblies, they would justify it in terms of the ways in which those reforms could strengthen the nation and make China as a nation better able to stand up against other powers, whether it's Western powers or the Japanese. So you do see this incredible force. You see it as well when you look at the history of Chinese communism, uh, you know, going back to Mao and all the way to now to Xi Jinping, it's hard to look at Chinese communism and say, what's really communist there? Or is this, at its core, a nationalist party? Uh, which is ironic, of course, because the communists fought against the nationalist party uh, many decades ago. So this, this nationalism it permeates uh, modern Chinese history as it permeates contemporary Chinese society. And one thing we try to do in the book is really um, delve deep into its roots and explain, you know, why it is what it is. Orville, does that create another problem today as the country tries to move from this kind of nationalism to more individual responsibility and individual effort to take it to its next level economically, culturally, and politically? Well, I think nationalism does not so much hinder them economically in terms of developing. I mean, what it does, I mean, every single leader in the 20th century, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, although to a lesser degree Deng Xiaoping, but Chiang Kai-shek, Sun Yat-sen, they all leaned on nationalism. This was the glue. This was the binding agent that was going to... Uh, bind up what Sun Yat-sen described as this dish of loose sand. It was going to literally kind of turn it into concrete. And so I think the real danger for nationalism, uh, yes, they'll unify the country, and yes, maybe they'll be proud, but is that it also has a kind of a, a, a tendency sometimes to want to sport itself 
um, and project itself, which makes, um, you know, could make China very threatening to its neighbors. And we already see this sort of muscular nationalism acting out in all of these island disputes that is really for China after having done quite a remarkable job in, 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 in calming down all of its neighbors in Asia about its rise, and now suddenly find its neighbors very anxious and very uh, wary that this big leviathan that's uh, sort of coming of age in China is going to start projecting itself in a very nationalistic, muscular, and, and unfriendly way. How much of that, though, comes at this point from the fact of, of all the success China's had, all the economic success, that it still doesn't get the kind of respect from the U.S. and the West in general that it thinks it deserves. Part of, part of the respect issue is the most difficult one for the Chinese because, of course, you know, respect has to be earned from others. Um, it, it's, it's a relational um, dimension. And so wealth and power, to a great extent, the Chinese can um, can get on their own. Uh, and, and, and what we're seeing now over the last couple of decades is that they're doing it. But respect is much more elusive. Um, and this is, many Chinese that Orville and I talk to reflect on this, and, and they're frustrated because, you know, there's a huge discussion of something like soft power in China now. Um, and it's all underlined by this frustration of why. Well, here we are. We're, we're, we're so much um, economically, we're so much more important, and diplomatically, and even militarily, we're increasingly important to the world. But we don't get that kind of soft power. We don't get that kind of respect. And you know, we think it goes back to some of the other issues you've raised, Jeff, about individual freedom, about the political system, about you know social justice and and environmental. Uh, the environmental destruction of all this, you know, all of these qualitative sides of growth uh, that the Chinese struggle with, until they get those right, they're not going to earn that kind of respect that they also crave quite profoundly. Orville, how much does it also have to do with this idea of still wanting to eliminate, as Mao talked about, the, the idea of harmony being, you know, the sole goal of society, that the idea of permanent revolution was somehow important in driving forth success and nationalism. Well, in this, Mao was rather singular. I mean, he was a, a real, I mean, he believed in permanent revolution, and Mao psychologically as well. I think he took great, sort of derived great energy from constantly attacking and overturning things and sort of promoting struggle. And he had this sort of, he was actually quite a, a good philosopher, a political philosopher, and his, his sort of notion was that societies progress when you allow them to contend and sort of in this Hegelian way they march forward into history and improve themselves, you know, struggling and resolving and creating more struggles. But, you know, when Deng Xiaoping came along, he was sort of exactly the opposite. He didn't have an infatuation with endless struggle and permanent revolution, and he wanted to calm things down. He wanted people to have better lives and enable the society to develop economically. So there are these two contending poles, and one you could say is sort of the Confucian pole, which wants order, stability, correct you know, uh, orthodoxy, et cetera. And then you have Mao, the, the kind of the, the homewrecker who just comes in and starts 
tearing everything up every few years with mass movements and political upheavals. And so this is sort of what's been fighting, contending over the last uh, you know half of the 20th century. And now China's pretty much rejected that whole Maoist model. Uh, but the question is then, how do they prevent themselves from kind of uh, bogging down, becoming bureaucratic, uh, you know, becoming sort of too hierarchical and too 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 stable in a way which is exactly what the why the, the the Chinese communist revolution began in the first place too unequal the danger in that kind of operating from humiliation is not only can it spur great success as it has but it also can spur a certain kind of depression that could lead to this violent outburst that that you talk about yeah, I mean, th- th- this was a tremendous paradox, and it was uh, we puzzled over this too. I mean, how can a nation that wants to be great and progress uh, do so on a foundation, a sort of ideological foundation of victimhood, which is implicitly ascribes inequality? You're acted upon. You're 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 helpless. But th- there is this curious kind of tradition in tradu- uh, a Confucian culture, which uh, we think kind of plays into this, namely that in order to galvanize yourself and cultivate yourself to be a new, new kind of a person or a new country with new energy, you have to recognize where you are and sort of how far down the pecking order you are. You have to you have to absorb your humiliation, understand your humiliation, and then use that as a goad to to sort of move you forward, to inspire you and fill you with an energy to overcome that. How important is it, John, for the West to really understand this and grasp this in its dealings with China as it enables China to respond to and, and begin to fill the void that it feels as a result of all that we're talking about? Well, Jeff, I'm a history professor, so of course I think, you know, everyone always has to know history before they get into something. But I, I think, you know, on, on the U.S.-China relationship, um, you can see how this historical complex is constantly factoring in. And let me give you one example, you know, what the recent paradigm that the Chinese have sort of proposed to primarily to to the Obama administration and to, to U.S. officials is what they call a new type of great power relationship. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but this is what they lofted at that summit in the sunny lands, and, and this is kind of the big idea. Um, and, you know, if, of course, Obama and his advisors need to understand what the Chinese mean by that concept, and if they want to do that, they're going to have to dig into... China's basic conceptions of what a great power means, you know, and it's it's this historical complex that we describe where 200 years ago it was the great power, it was the only great power. It couldn't conceive of a sort of co-equal great power. There's just one sun in the sky. So then 100 years ago, being at the bottom of the junk pile, being defeated by the Japanese, trying to thaw its way back up, to just some modicum of being able to defend its territory, to now, to this place where, I mean, I think Orville would agree, we, we see the Chinese don't, they don't have a roadmap anymore because they're conceiving of a future in this century where maybe they, maybe it is a kind of G2. Maybe it's China and the United States at the top, but China has no historical precedent. 
for sharing the top. They know what it's like to be at the top, and now in modern times they know what it's like to be at the bottom. Um, so, you know, they're really struggling, and that's an opportunity for the United States and for other countries um, to help write a new chapter in their history. But you have to know the preceding chapters and what the Chinese are coming into this discussion with. The Chinese also come to it, Orville, without a model of contemporary success. There's no historical model for them to deal with in terms of being successful. So that, too, in terms of defining the Chinese dream or national greatness, that, too, is something that they struggle with. Yeah, I mean, they're really, uh, you know, as Deng Xiaoping famously said, they're crossing the river by sort of feeling their way with their feet over the stones. They really don't know where they're going. They just want to go there, and they're going there with a kind of an incredibly madcap uh, and impressive energy. But no, there isn't a destination. And moreover, the other interesting thing is that even though they are remarkably successful, not to say they're not huge, huge problems that, that are bedeviling them, but I think anyone who goes to China can see the success, it still doesn't quite slake that century and a half of uh, insecurity, inferiority that they wove into the victim culture. So on the one hand, they've kind of grown up. They're sort of like teenagers that have become adults. On the other hand, they don't quite trust, they're not quite comfortable in their skin as a big power operator, much less as a G2 partner with the U.S., and so they kind of eschew that. They push that away properly because they just aren't quite ready to play that role, and yet they really want to be a big power, and they want to be equal, and they want to be respected, all of these kind of conflicted yearnings. And it's going to take a while, I think, in our view, for them to kind of settle down and feel comfortable uh, in this sort of a sphere of influence that they have actually managed and quite extraordinarily managed to generate. Which raises the question, Orville, of how they do that. What is it that they can reach down into in terms of their history or their culture that can give them some grounding at all in trying to achieve that? Well, this is where, you know, China becomes sort of reaching everywhere at once. Uh, this is a continuation of the last century and a half, and the reason why we wrote this book, because really the last century and a half has been an effort by China to try on one suit of clothes after another, to see what would work, to unify the country, to, 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 to uplift it, to uh, create wealth, to create power, to create respect. You know, they've tried everything. They tried, uh, you know, imperial government, Confucianism. They tried republicanism. They tried Christianity, anarchism, communism in various guys is now kind of Leninist capitalism. And so this process is going to go on. They do not quite know what their model is for the future. And this is a profoundly kind of destabilizing situation to be in. I think if America didn't have a constitution and a declaration of independence, it didn't really know what the ultimate form of its government and sort of political philosophy was, how strangely compassless that would make us. It's more complicated because the West looks at it, or the U.S. in particular, and says, what's the problem? Just be more like us, and it's all fine. Right. Well, listen, it'll be uh, a hot day in hell when China <laughs> is just like us. Uh, it's never has been the case. It never will be the case. This is a very distinctive uh, society, country, and culture with 
deep, deep traditions of its own in which they, there's tremendous amounts of love, hate, attraction, and repulsion. Whatever China does, it will be distinctively Chinese. And I think Americans have long since, um, you know, uh, past their shelf life as evangelists for China becoming like America. That's very naive. We can help in many, many ways, and we have many good examples and a, and a fair number of bad ones, too. But, uh, you know, we are not the only model in the world to which all of countries are moving through history in, in, in an urgent uh, effort to uh, attain. John, talk a little bit about generational change and how the younger generation of, of Chinese professionals and educated Chinese are still imbued with so much of the, of the culture and the ideas that we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the striking things if you spend time in China and have a chance to get a, at a more sustained with the different generations. So on, on the topic of our book, the resonance of this idea that sort of the driving force of modern China, its kind of destiny that it's waiting to achieve is restoration of wealth and power. That's something that cuts across uh, the generational lines. So, you know, there's a phenomenon in China of the so-called angry youth. Uh, and the angry youth have been around for quite a while. They're very active on the Internet. So sometimes they have a, a disproportionate impact on policymaking because the Chinese leaders actually listen to what goes on on the Internet, and these guys are very active. And, you know, sometimes these angry youth are the harshest critics of their own government. Some of them are even strong advocates of something like democratization. At the same time, they are almost universally intensely nationalistic. And so when they criticize their government, they say on an issue like Taiwan, or most recently now the focal point is on Japan, they will criticize their government from the perspective of we're too weak. We don't recognize the strength we have. We need to act in a much more aggressive manner on the world stage. So now that's just one kind of the youth, and we could talk about other types of young people and young professionals who have much softer, more moderate views they want to reconcile with Japan. But still, they feel Japan hasn't done its historical work, and they feel more generally that, you know, they share this historical consciousness that their country has been the doormat of imperialist powers, and, you know, they're still not quite ready to walk through that door and just feel like one one equal power among others. So this intergenerational dimension, although we don't, you know, in the book we focus on the kind of top leaders, this cutting across the generations even in China today is a very important context for what we're what we're talking about. And Orville, is the leadership class in China today up to the challenge of of all that we've been talking Thank about you. of all the country faces? Well, uh, first of all, uh, one should say if you look back from 1989 when the whole train practically went off the rails uh, to now, you'd have to say it's been a pretty extraordinary sort of episode uh, interim of world history. This country that seemed to be about to lose all its wheels and crash land managed to get things back together and to engender this extraordinary period of economic growth. Now, I don't want to downplay the problems and to suggest that everything's coming up roses for eternity. That's not the case. Going forward, we have a very interesting and new kind of a situation uh, in terms of leaders. You know, it used to be China was known for its big leaders, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and these 
people, they couldn't do whatever they wanted, but they had tremendous sort of uh, uh, ability to sway and to, 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 to push the country in the directions that they wished. Now we have a very different situation where we don't have this big sort of uh, uh, leader culture with a tremendously uh, persuasive, well-known personage at the top, but a more consensual group, uh, sort of a rule by committee. So the leaders that we know, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, the premier, uh, the president and party general secretary and premier, they sort of sit on the top of the seven-man standing committee of the Politburo of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. But they don't just wave their scepter and the whole country turns in whatever direction they say. They've got the horse trade and there's tremendous divisions and ideological disputes that go on and, and, and tremendous uh, differences of view of how China should go forward. And remember, as I said earlier, there is no plan. So this makes it leadership is at a very high premium, but it's very, very difficult to lead a country that's come to the end of a kind of an, an act in its sort of drama no one knows what the next stage is going to exactly be like and the leadership is a kind of a consensual proposition not one man sort of you know Kim Il-sung Kim Jong-il type of uh, uh, situation Orville Schell John DeLore the book is Wealth and Power China's Long March to the 21st Century it's just out from Random House Orville John I thank you both so much for spending time with us today thank you thank you we'll take a break I'll be right back